We are in our second week of our super encouraging, super uplifting series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes called Meaningless. Uh, If you're here last week, I hope you detect my sarcasm in that statement because so far, this has not been a very encouraging book. Uh, We began last week by discussing King Solomon, the the author of this book, his assertion uh, that everything is meaningless. Here is a king who is known for his wisdom, who is known for having experienced everything really the world has to offer, and yet he said it's all meaningless. Last week, kind of the key verse of this book that we looked at, says, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, the chasing after the wind. I had someone tell me after last week's sermon, you took a group of perfectly happy people and you just crushed them. Uh, But that's kind of what Ecclesiastes does to us a little bit, is it it gets us out of our comfort zone by making us wrestle with what is truly important in our lives. We saw this with the key phrase last week, this idea of under the sun, that when we look at just what the world has to offer, it will always come up short compared to what we, the hope that we have in heavenly realities. And so this morning, I wanted to get into kind of the specifics of different areas that Solomon looks at and declares them meaningless as well, starting with this morning, wisdom is meaningless. This genre of Ecclesiastes, the kind of book that this is, is what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. And what this is, is, is practical, you know, earthly, nitty-gritty stuff of life. We see wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs and some of the Psalms, these kind of real-world issues and, and what God says about them. Uh, I said this last week, but I think it bears repeating as we are still kind of being introduced to this book that Ecclesiastes is real and it's messy. And in many places, it deals with the raw emotion as Solomon kind of struggles with the heartache of coming from spending a lifetime of chasing after and amassing all the wrong things. And yet, being wisdom literature, you see the irony in this book characterized as wisdom, stating that wisdom is meaningless, especially when it's written by a guy like Solomon. I mentioned last week how Solomon began his reign as king of Israel with great promise. He was taking over the throne for his father, David, kind of the king of Israel, the, the king, the archetypal you know, king, the, the golden age of Israel. And yet because of his youth and experience, Solomon chose to ask for something very important. God offered him kind of this blank check. He could have asked for wealth and health and power, and yet Solomon instead asks for wisdom, for discernment, for judgment on how to rule this kingdom well. We see this wisdom expressed throughout most of Solomon's life. He's an expert in countless subjects. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs, over 1,000 songs, three books of the Bible, ruled as king over Israel for nearly 40 years of peace and prosperity. And 1 Kings 3, the chapter where he asks for this wisdom, we see him kind of demonstrate this already, an example of one of his wise rulings. There's two women who come to him, and uh, both of them have newborn babies, but one of these babies dies in the night. And so the mother of the baby who died swaps it with the living baby, hoping the other mother wouldn't notice. Uh, Of course, she does. That causes a problem. They come to Solomon, and she wants justice. She wants to get her baby back. And so Solomon has this solution that doesn't seem very wise. He says, okay, get a sword, just chop the living baby in half. You each get half a baby. And it doesn't sound like a very good plan. But instead, we see that it says, the woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby, don't kill him. 
But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Of course, Solomon never intended to cut the baby in half, but he knew that the real mother would be moved by the love, that it would reveal who truly this baby's mother was. And this is kind of the wisdom that characterized Solomon. He was known for his wisdom. It was kind of his superpower. Mark Driscoll, he said, If Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and Hugh Hefner somehow morphed into one man who was simultaneously pope and president, that person might be named Solomon. That might be kind of a, an overstatement, but you get the gist of who Solomon is. He is wise, he is powerful, he is influential. And so as we've looked through this book, searching for this meaning of life, you would think that wisdom would be kind of Solomon's trump card. They would hold that to the end, that all of these other things are meaningless, but wisdom is, is really what's important. And yet we see something very different come from the lips of Solomon in this book. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledgeable, the more grief. He continues in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. It's better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. When then do I gain, what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Solomon looks at his life and the gift of wisdom that he's been given. And he says, it's, it's meaningless. It's of no consequence. You know, whatever value I thought wisdom might have been to me, in the end, it will profit me nothing. And this is a conclusion that really kind of grates against our strongly held assumptions, our strongly held assertions. You know, wisdom, we think, is a good thing, right? I mean, the, something that other passages of the Bible tell us to seek and pray for. I mean, Solomon himself says in Proverbs 3.13, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. We think of wisdom that something, as something that comes with gray hair and arthritic knuckles, something that we long to experience throughout our lives. We even have a premium on, our, on wisdom in our culture. We don't call it wisdom, though. We call it education and experience. You know, the master's degree has become the new bachelor's degree, which has become the new high school diploma. The, the standard of the bar for education keeps getting higher. If you've looked for a job recently, there's a good chance most of them will say something like experience required or experience preferred. And even Solomon recognizes there's some value in wisdom. He saw that it's better to be wise than foolish. He says it's better to walk in the light than in the dark. And I think all of us want to demonstrate good judgment. Nobody wants to make poor decisions. I don't think any of us woke up this morning and said, I just can't wait to do something stupid today. Like, <laughs> wisdom is better than the alternative. But even despite a lifetime of wisdom, 
and being labeled the wisest man to ever live despite requesting wisdom over and above everything else he could have desired. Solomon looks at wisdom and he says, it's meaningless, it's a chasing after the wind. It's an insubstantial vapor that is here one second and gone the next. And so what could make a man who valued wisdom above every other virtue, who when left with a blank check from God chose to ask for wisdom, who wrote thousands of Proverbs, whose sole purpose was to report wisdom, what could make him say something like wisdom is meaningless? It's, it's like Steve Jobs swearing off computers, Einstein dismissing science, Darwin decrying evolution. And well, what could cause Solomon to write off wisdom as inconsequential, as fleeting and immaterial as a wisp of smoke? I think one of the reasons that we see wisdom commended in the Bible is because it leads us to see that God's way is the best way. Proverbs 3.7 says, Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so what Solomon is doing is Solomon is pointing out that the wisdom allotted to him allowed him to see the world in, in such a way that he could recognize its brokenness. That he saw that its, its need for God was clear. He says things like, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In other words, he's seeing everything around him, all of the brokenness, and he's saying, it's weighing on me. Because wisdom had allowed him to see God's way. But it also allowed him to see how far off the world had become, and it allows us to see the same. Wisdom is a heavy burden because it helps us to see the world as God sees it. And it takes note of what is crooked, but it can't straighten it. And wisdom can bring sorrow because it reveals to us not just how broken the world is, but how broken we are. And yet, in all of that, the diagnosis, Solomon says that wisdom is meaningless because though it can see the brokenness, it can't fix the brokenness. And we see this in Solomon's own life. I mean, here's the man who had everything, wealth and wisdom and women and power, and still his heart was led astray. He had all of the God-given insight to see the brokenness of the world, and he still ended up broken himself. And maybe that's your story too. Maybe you see the brokenness of the world. Maybe you see the brokenness of your life, and you're powerless to fix it. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe they grew up in church. They have an understanding of who God is and what's expected of them, and yet they've rejected it. They've turned from him. And you worry about their eternity. Maybe it's an addiction. You have God's word. You have God's wisdom that tells you what you're doing is wrong, but you just seem powerless to stop it. Maybe it's a tragedy in your life that left you doubting God's goodness or his grace. Maybe it's a different scenario altogether, but the feeling is the same. You see the brokenness around you and within you, but you just feel so powerless to fix it. Wisdom is meaningless. Because though it has the power to recognize the brokenness, it is powerless to fix it. Unless, of course, your wisdom comes from a source that specializes in fixing what is broken. There's a story told in engineering circles of an interchange between Henry Ford, the, the car maker, uh, and Charles Steinmetz, who is a lesser-known electrical genius uh, of the early 1900s. Ford was having an issue with one of his massive generators that powered one of his main production factories. 
And when all of his electrical experts failed, Ford called in Steinmetz for his experience, his expertise. Uh, Steinmetz rejected all assistance, asking only for a cot, a notebook, and a pencil. And he spent two days just listening to different parts of the generator, scribbling calculations on his notepad. Finally, after two days, he climbed up a ladder and made a chalk mark on the side of the generator and told engineers to, to remove a plate uh, at that mark where they would find the faulty equipment. Of course, upon the recommendation, the generator worked perfectly. And Ford was pleased until he got an invoice for the service for $10,000. He said, $10,000 for a chalk mark? He didn't even fix it. I fixed it. And so when he asked for an itemization of the bill, Charles Steinmetz gladly complied. He said, making a chalk mark on the generator, $1. Knowing where to make the mark, $9,999. And Ford paid the bill. You see, recognizing that something is broken isn't much use if you don't know how to fix it. It's $1 of a $10,000 bill. Only wisdom that knows how to fix the broken is truly meaningful. And where can we find this kind of wisdom, this wisdom that has the power to fix the brokenness? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul's saying human wisdom, even, even the wisdom of the wisest man to ever live, is powerless to fix the brokenness of this world. Now, the brokenness of the world will only be fixed by God's wisdom. And what is God's wisdom? It's Christ crucified. The wisdom that will fix the brokenness of the world is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And listen, I know that this sounds like the Sunday school answer. What's going to fix the problem? It's Jesus. And I know how that looks in the midst of the foolishness of the world. It looked the same way back then. He said, Jews, they looked for this wisdom, but it was a stumbling block to them. A crucified Messiah was simply incompatible. It's like a square circle. It just it didn't compute. A Messiah was a warrior and a king and a conqueror and a victor and the cross was shame and humiliation and death and defeat. And for the Greeks who looked for reason, it was simply unreasonable. Unreasonable that a God would die, that a God could die. And to, so to say that the cross is the wisdom that fixes our brokenness, it might sound a little weak and foolish and cliche. But when you come face to face with your own brokenness, and your own sinfulness, and your own inability to fix what is wrong in your life, the cross becomes what you need the most. It becomes true, meaningful wisdom. For your kids, 
The ones who grew up in church and have now rejected God, the cross means that they always have an opportunity to choose hope and life. There's always an invitation, always grace to meet them where they are, should they choose to accept it. For those struggling with addiction, there's always power to break the chains of sin because you know that Christ broke the power of sin and death. The tragedy that made you doubt God's goodness, we need look no further than the cross. To see that God's love for us is so great that He would rather die than live without you. Yeah, the cross might fly in the face of what the world calls wisdom. But the crucified Christ is the only wisdom that can fix our brokenness. Solomon says that wisdom only leads to heartache. Wisdom brings frustration because through it we realize that the world is not what it should be and we feel powerless to fix it. He says that wisdom increases sorrow because we become aware of the pain and the brokenness. And sure, given the choice between wisdom and foolishness, we should pick wisdom. But in the end, both the fool and the wise men die. And while all of this might have been true in Solomon's mind, the cross shows us that true wisdom, God's wisdom, makes every wrong right and can change every sorrow to joy. But Solomon didn't have one thing right. Whether we are wise or foolish, all of us will eventually die. But that doesn't mean, as he asserts, that we all share in the same fate. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Notice it doesn't say the fool says in his mind. Because lots of us cognitively acknowledge the existence of God, but many people live their lives in their heart as if God is inconsequential. So I want to ask this morning, what is the heartbeat of your life? Is it continual pursuit of God's power and presence and purpose? Do you live your life in the shadow of the cross in light of the wisdom of God? Or does the way you live your life communicate there is no God? When we live our lives governed by the wisdom of God, we find meaning in the eternity that He has prepared for us. When we live our lives surrounded by brokenness and unwilling then to accept the one that has the power to fix it, that foolishness will lead us to an eternity separated from His presence. In light of that brokenness this morning, I want to offer an invitation. For some of you, this is a decision that you made long ago to make Jesus the Lord of your life, to accept Him as your Savior, Savior, to experience the wisdom of the cross. And that's wonderful. That's, that's what all, that's what we want for everybody. And yet life can continue to kind of go on from that point and we can kind of find ourselves more and more consumed with things of this world. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to go through this, this book is because there's so many things that are important in here that we pursue and yet we find in the end they're meaningless if we don't have our focus on the right things. And so maybe this morning is an opportunity just where you are in your seat to recognize that you've been chasing after the wrong things. It doesn't mean you're outside of a relationship with God or outside of the realm of His grace, outside of your salvation, but it maybe just means you're a little off track of pursuing Him the way that you should. Maybe for others of you, this decision to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, to live in the wisdom of the cross is not one you've made before, and you need to do that this morning. 
If that's the case, I'll be up front during this next song. I'd love to have a conversation with you. It's probably not a conversation that we'll be able to just leave here, but an opportunity to have a conversation that continues. That we can set up a time to talk about what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life and to pursue him rather than to pursue the things of this world. I'd love to initiate that conversation this morning. Whatever the case, wherever you are, I want to continue to encourage you to pursue the wisdom of God because everything else is meaningless. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we do so recognizing that sometimes our hearts just kind of continually go off track. If we're not conscious and careful about pursuing you daily, it's easy just to turn to the left or the right. And so, God, we pray this morning that we would just be renewed, our focus on you would be renewed, our eyes on Jesus would be renewed, that our pursuit of the cross would be renewed, to live our lives in a cruciform way, daily sacrificing our desires so that we might be closer to you. God, it's my prayer this morning as we continue to go throughout this book, that we would recognize where true meaning and purpose are found, and that's in you, God. God, as we continue to talk about the, the meaningless, the inconsequential things of this life, I pray that you would strip these things away from us so we could see you more clearly. God, for those in this room that haven't made the decision to pursue you and to take a knee before the cross, to take a knee before your throne and to acknowledge you as King and Savior, I pray that your Spirit would be stirring in their hearts this morning. Bring them to that decision. God, we thank you for the meaning that we found in the foolishness of the cross. When everybody else thought that something had gone way off track, God, it was your plan that brought us our salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he endured on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.